John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And then there's the very word of God, which Katie has just read for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but that you have spoken to us in your word. You who are the word, you've come to us. We pray, Father, that you would come again today as we consider your words together. Shape us, mold us, make us more and more like Jesus. And Lord, we would ask that you would use us. Use us to be salt and light in East Nashville, to be a blessing to those around us in East Nashville, to to be a light that draws people to you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church along with Mitchell Carter. I'm gonna do something that we almost, well, I can actually, I don't think we we ever do, which is I'm gonna identify a visitor. But I look over here, and I see my brother Morris Tipton. Pastor Morris Tipton is pastor of First National, uh, First First Baptist, East National, and Aaron and Eric and I have, had the privilege of breaking bread numerous times with Pastor Tipton to dream about the future of joint ministries. And I just want to say, Pastor Tipton, thank you for the presence. Thank you for the pleasure of your presence. Thank you for being here. With that said, we're starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, I have entitled this new sermon series, A Light to the Nations. And we're going to be asking the question for the next number of months, what is a church and what is its mission? Or uh, to ask another way, who are we and what are we here for? Now that might sound like sort of a Christianity 101 type question, sort of a, a basic question. But as I've thought and prayed and read this summer, I've concluded that this is a question that we need to be asking over and over and over, day after day. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ says that we are to be the salt of the earth, that we are to be the light of the world. But instead, in the, wor- in, in the, steads, in the words of Scott Sauls, who's pastor of Christ Presbyterian in Brentwood, in the eyes of the watching world, our lives are often perceived as being more lackluster than compelling, more contentious 
than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more fickle than faithful, more materialistic than generous, more proud than humble. And you've got to ask the question, why is that? What, like, what's, what, what's happened to us? Scott suggests that instead of shining as a light to our culture, we've become products of our culture. And the world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself. How, how did this happen? How, how did we get this way? Well, the answer to that question is, is long and complicated, but one thing we can say for sure, and that is this, that we have drunk the Kool-Aid of our culture. What do I mean? In order to understand our world and, our, 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 and, and to make sense of our lives and to find our place and our purpose in it, we all depend upon a story and we all depend upon images to to answer the big questions of life, like why, or like who am I? Where am I? What's, what's wrong with me and the world? And what's the solution? And, and, and here's the thing. Our culture offers a myriad of answers to these questions. To the question, who am I and where am I? Our, our one answer our culture gives is, you are an individual and you live in a world of individuals that will be a better place as individuals fully embrace and live out their individual freedom. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? Well, there's actually nothing wrong with you except that you are living within constraints. The, the restrictive and repressive boundaries that others have placed upon you. What's the solution? It's to embark, it's to embrace that life's highest good is your individual freedom, your happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That any traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, or social ties that restrict you must be rejected deconstructed or destroyed, that any form of external authority must be rejected and the desires of your heart are to be pursued and praised. Another way our culture answers the question, who am I, is to say that, that you and I, we are consumers who live in a world that is meant to meet our needs and our desires. What's wrong? Well, your needs and desires are, are going unmet and therefore you are unsatisfied. What's the solution? I need stuff. I need experiences or, or I need relationships or, or I need love. I am an empty tank that will only be satisfied when it is filled up by something or someone else. Now, why do, I, why do I tell you this? Well, it's because those narratives, those, those images are the air we breathe. They are the, the, the water we swim in. But the problem isn't those stories or those um, images per se. 
The problem is that our sinful, idolatrous hearts are drawn to them like moths to a flame. And unless we are incredibly mindful of that fact, we will end up looking at ourselves and looking at the world and looking at the Bible through world-colored glasses. We will adopt them as our answers to life's biggest questions and we will smuggle them into the church. We will try to, to do a foundations mashup. Beloved, this is exactly what Leslie Newbegin says has happened. Leslie Newbegin lived and worked as a missionary among the Hindus and the Muslims in India from 1936 to 1974. And while in India, he wrestled with the meaning of, of the foundational stories and images shared in those cultures. And he, and he wrestled with how these stories and images might relate to Christianity. He comes back to Britain in 1974 and he continues to struggle. Except this time he's, he struggles to understand what story and what images ha, are being embodied within the Western church. And what he concluded is that the church in the West is an advanced case of syncretism, which, which means that the church in the West has morphed into this sort of unholy hybrid, this mashup of the Christian story and the world stories. And he asks this question. I want you to hear this question. He asks, can the church in the West be converted? Can the church in the West be converted? Now, you might hear that. You might think that's, he's, he's being hyperbolic. He's, he's exaggerating to make his point, but, but folks, he isn't. In the same way that Jesus says that we cannot serve two masters, Leslie Newbegin is saying that you cannot have two foundational stories. What happens when we try to anyway? Two things happen. We become deeply compromised by the idols of our culture. My personal freedom, my happiness, and my self-expression begin to trump anything God has to say in his word that I don't like or makes me feel uncomfortable. And the result is that we become theologically astute, morally upright, at least in the eyes of the world, socially engaged, warmly pious idol worshipers. Two, when all is said and done, we have nothing to offer the world because we have capitulated to the world, becoming nothing more than a religious imitation of the world. In his book, A Light to the Nations, Michael Goheen, who is a missiologist, meaning that he thinks a lot about the, missions of the mission of the church, says that we can see this attempted mashup of the foundation stories of the church, or of Christianity and the world in the church today, particularly in the way that so many people think about church. He writes, some people think about the church, some people think that the church is supposed to be like a motivational seminar giving people tips on how to better their lives or to be better parents or to have better marriages or to live and love their singleness. Or the church is supposed to be a mall or food court, providing people with options, options and programs to meet their religious needs and their not so religious needs. 
Or the church is supposed to be like a community center, helping people fill up their social calendars with people who share the same hobbies or who are in the same stage of life. Or the church is supposed to be like a theater, a place where people are invited to sit back and passively enjoy various kinds of entertainment. Where the church is supposed to be like a socially oriented nonprofit, providing people with opportunities to serve others, to serve the needy and the poor, when and only when their calendar is open and they don't have anything else planned for Saturday morning. Now, hear me, please. The church, the church has to be a place of teaching. And the church should be a place and it should be a people who care deeply for the needs of others, for the poor and for the needy. The church should be a place that has one, that has as one of its goals to, be a, uh, to, to help people connect one to another in deep, rich fellowship. And, and the church should be a place that equips people to integrate their faith and their everyday lives and their everyday relationships. But what Goheen is concerned about is what happens when the idols of individualism and consumerism make their way into the church. What happens? The church loses what makes it different and distinct. Again, to quote Scott Sauls, we become a people who deny our neighbor, take up our comforts, and follow our dreams. Beloved, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Christians can only be light to the nations when they stand out as different from the nations. Christ's calling to you and his calling to me isn't to pursue self-fulfillment, but self-denial. Jesus said to his disciples and he says to us, deny yourself, take up your crosses and follow me. That's how we will be a light to the nations. Now, you might be wondering, what does, what does any of this have to do with John 20? Well, the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples paint for us a different picture. They, 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 they tell a different story, the true story of the whole world and they give us an entirely different mission. So I want us to think about that for just a few minutes. I wanna begin by giving you some context. It's the night of the resurrection. This summer, you guys have been looking at John 17, well, John 14 through 17, the, the teaching and the prayer that Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed. This is just the end of that week, or actually the beginning of next week. It's Sunday night. Early that day, Mary, Mary, earlier that day, Mary Magdalene has encountered the resurrected Christ for the very first time. And she's super excited and she runs and she tells the disciples and they don't know what to do with what she said. But what we do know is that they are full of fear because John tells us in this passage that they've locked the door because they're afraid for their lives. And then the resurrected Christ appears. What does he say? Twice he says, peace be with you. It's not just a greeting, it's shalom. Shalom be with you. And then he says this, 
As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. Think about those words. As the Father sent me, even so am I sending you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying to them and he's saying to us by extension, my mission is your mission. But here's the thing. Jesus' story and Jesus' mission don't start with Jesus. They actually start way back in the earliest chapters of Genesis. And they come more and more into light as we consider the story of Abram and Israel. And what that means is that in order to understand our story and our mission, we have to understand Jesus' story and Jesus' mission. But in order to understand Jesus' story and Jesus' mission, we have to understand the story of Israel and Israel's mission. And in order to understand Israel's mission and Israel's story, we have to understand God's story and God's mission. So what I want to do this morning is give you a 30,000 foot view by telling you God's story, which leads to Israel's story, which culminates in Jesus' story, which unveils our story. In the, in the biggest and broadest terms, the Bible's story proceeds through six acts. They're on your outline. Act one, creation. Genesis one, Genesis two. Act two, the fall and its devastating effects on all of creation. Genesis three to Genesis 11. Act three, redemption initiated through Old Testament Israel. Genesis 12 to Malachi 4. Act four, redemption accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. In the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. The four gospels and the first couple of chapters of Acts. Act five, the mission of the church from Pentecost to Christ's return which of course is where we live. Acts 2 to Revelation 19. And then finally, Acts 6, redemption completed in the new creation, Revelation 20 and 21. Now I wanna think through those acts with you for just a few minutes. Act 1 and 2. After God created the heavens and the earth, our first parents rebelled against him. And the result of their rebellion is that all of God's good creation was infected and it was, it, was, it was spoiled, it was marred by evil and sin. Every, it, 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 it was a disaster. Humanity's relationship with God was broken. Humanity's relationship with the self was, was distorted. Humanity's relationship with one another ended up in nothing but fights and wars. Even humanity's relationship with creation was impacted. And yet God does not turn his back on a world spinning wildly out of control and hell bent on destruction. Rather, what does God do? He turns his face toward it in love and he makes a promise. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then he sets out on the long road to redemption, to restore the lost as his people 
and the world as his kingdom. What you have in, in, in those words to the serpent is nothing less than the first announcement of the gospel, which Christopher J.H. Rice calls the announcement of the mission of God. How does God plan to redeem and, and restore his good creation? Act three. God doesn't wave a wand. He doesn't just sort of start over. Rather, he chooses and forms a community to embody his work of healing in the midst of a broken and rebellious world. His intention is that in and through this community, the world might see the beginning of the sort of world that God had initially intended in his creation and which he still intends to bring about through his saving work at the end of creation. Beginning with Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, God begins his great work of redemption and restoration. When Abram's family has grown into the people of Israel, God rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to himself at Mount Sinai and he makes them into his treasured possession. And then he commissions them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he gives them what? He gives them his law. Now, why does he do that? It's not because God is a grump. It's not because God is oppressive or restrictive. It's not because God is a killjoy. It's so that the Israelites might live their lives in a way that will make unmistakably clear this new world before the eyes of the watching world. But the people of Israel continually fail in their calling. Instead of their lives drawing the nations to God, they become like the nations and they are drawn to the gods of the nations. For centuries, God, through the Hebrew prophets, over, over, and over calls Israel to repentance. He says, return to me for I have redeemed you. The prophets warned that if the people of God persist in their apathy and idolatry and injustice, God will scatter them to the ends of the earth, keeping his promise that he gave to Moses and those Israelites before they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land in Deuteronomy 28. And this is exactly what happens. Beginning in 586 BC, the armies of Babylon conquered Jerusalem, destroying the temple and taking thousands of Israelites into exile. But this is not the end of the story. At the same time that the prophets are warning the people of God about the judgment of God, they are also declaring that one day, God, acting in love, wrath, and power, through his anointed Messiah and by his spirit, will gather the scattered sheep of Israel, deal with their sin, renew them, transform their hearts, and form them into a new society of the redeemed. And then we come to act four. Jesus steps onto the stage. When Jesus arrives, he takes on himself Israel's missionary identity and calling. It's interesting that if you look closely at Jesus' life, it parallels in many ways the story of the Israelites, except where Israel failed, Jesus is faithful. 
Jesus begins his ministry by announcing the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, which is the climax of the long story of God's redemptive work anticipated by the Israelites for millennia. Jesus embodies God's purposes for humanity. He's what you and I should look like. And the power of God to renew the entire creation is present in Jesus himself. And it's clearly seen in his deeds and particularly in his miracles. Jesus begins to gather the lost sheep of Israel to himself. And he forms them into this small community of disciples. And he invites them into his mission to make God's kingdom known. But instead of receiving him as their long-awaited Messiah, the Jews of Jesus' day reject him. The religious leaders hand Jesus over to their Roman occupiers who humiliate, torture, and kill Jesus by the cruelest means imaginable. But again, this is not the end of the story. Act five, a short time later, a little over a month, Jesus' followers begin to be heard proclaiming the gospel that that in his death and resurrection, Jesus has done what God promised to Adam and Eve. That, That he has conquered evil and sin and death and not just evil sin and death out there, but evil sin and death in here. And what's really crazy is that this less than impressive community of misfits claims to be the vanguard of the new humanity that will one day fill the new earth. How can these people make such an outrageous claim? It's because they know and they believe what we sang earlier today, that Jesus lives That Jesus really physically rose bodily from the dead. And they know and they believe that in his resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated the coming kingdom of God, becoming the first fruits of the new creation, the firstborn into the resurrection life to come. And before ascending into heaven, the resurrected Christ meets with his little group of followers And he commissions them as the renewed Israel, the the new humanity charged to continue his mission of making known the good news of the kingdom of God and gathering in the nations until he returns. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us that Jesus says, speaks these words to his disciples, some who are worshiping, some who are doubting, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And after he ascends to heaven and takes his rightful seat at the right hand of God, what does Jesus do? He pours out his spirit into the hearts and to the lives of this little community of restored Israel, empowering and equipping them to embody and proclaim the news of the kingdom of God in the midst of cultures in every part of the world. This small ragtag community is to be a tangible, invisible sign that God's new world is indeed coming, 
their words and their lives are to say, we are a preview of the new day, of the new world. And Jesus leaves them with a promise, which is Acts 6, that one day he will return as judge of all to finish his work of restoration and every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is God's story. And this is the church's story as well. And the question we have to ask, the question you have to ask, is this your story? Is this the story you live? You live in your homes or at work, when you rest, when you play. Is this the story you tell your children, you tell your coworkers, you tell your neighbors? Does this story shape and define and explain your life? If someone was to look at you, would they, would they think, man, they're, they're so different. Not only is this God's story and the church's story, but it also lays out for us God's mission and the mission of the church. Think again for a minute about what Jesus said to his disciples on resurrection night. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This small, even unimpressive first century community of believers is the New Testament church in seed form. With these words, Jesus not only invites, but he commissions and commands his followers into his mission. Meaning that the mission of God's people is nothing less than participating in the mission of God. And then in the same way that the spirit was poured out on Jesus at his baptism, empowering him to accomplish his mission, we are told that Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then not long after, the Holy Spirit is poured out onto and into the lives of those first believers, empowering them to accomplish his mission. This is what we're gonna be talking about in the weeks ahead. But let's ask one question before, before we, we end, and that's this. What does living our mission look like? Suffice it to say that our mission involves living in and living out God's story of redeeming and transforming grace in Jesus Christ in the sight of the nations. It's, 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 it's to be a light to the nations. In other words, God's church is to be a display people, a people on display. They're to be a distinctive kind of people, a counterculture among the nations. Our mission is to manifest the glory of our great, glorious, and gracious God before the nations of the world, to be a spotlight that points to God in the midst of the nations. Is that who we are? Is, is that what we're like? 
Is, is that what our neighbors conclude when they look at us? So where do we go from here? For today, I wanna to leave you with an assignment. I don't normally give homework, but I'm gonna give homework. I want you to think about three questions. Sometime today, take some time. Sit down and think about these questions. What do you think is the mission of the church? First, yes, yeah, start there. What, what do I think is the mission of the church? And then and I want you to consider the following two questions. How has your understanding of the mission of the church been shaped by the stories of our culture? And how does your understanding of the mission of the church need to be reshaped by God's story? And then I want you to talk to God about what you discover. Confess where you discover that you've absorbed the stories and the images and the values and the goals of the world. You're not gonna surprise him, he already knows. And then praise the Lord that in spite of what he knows about you, he loves you and he has forgiven you and he has poured his spirit in you, not just to work through you, but to work in you, to transform you, to make you more and more like Jesus. And next, ask him for faith and for the strength to be faithful to his calling in your life. And then come back next week and join us as we dive more deeply into the story of God. And finally, remember this. I would encourage you even to, to memorize this and meditate upon this this week. It's the last line of the call to worship that Mitchell read to us this morning. That in him, in God, is the fountain of life. In his light do we see light. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your story. Thank you that you've invited us, even commanded us to join you, to participate in your mission. Lord, thank you for this privilege of being called to be salt and light. We confess to you that we fail miserably at this calling. And we thank you for Jesus who lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die so that we can call you Father, so that we can know that your spirit is at work in us, convicting, of us, convicting us of our sin and transforming our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. We pray that you would do these things for your honor and glory that the nations would sing your praise. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we respond in a number of ways to God's word. And one of the ways that we respond here is by confessing our faith, confessing what we know to be true. And this morning, our confession of faith is a confession of the story that shapes the world, of God's story. This is the Apostles' Creed, and it begins with the creation of the world and continues on the redemption that God accomplishes 
from sin and ends where Jeff just said that it ends with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting that is found only in God. So would you this morning confess what we know to be true together? Church, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you all pray with me now? Father, first of all, thank you. Thank you that this story that Jeff just recounted for us is the true story of the world. Thank you that even though we were lost in sin, you didn't leave us there. That you pursued us, that Father, your love for us was so great even in our sin that you sent Jesus to accomplish salvation for us, to accomplish our redemption and to bring us back to you. Jesus, thank you that you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have, that you have applied this redemption to us, that you have worked faith in our hearts, that you have entered into us and that you have brought us back into fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that this is true. We pray that you would make it true for us, that we would acknowledge its truth, that it would shape our lives. We pray, as, as Jeff mentioned this morning, that, that we would first of all be aware of the stories that our culture has given us that we're tempted to believe, to make the story that defines our life. Lord, we pray that we would see these things, that we would see them uh, for what they are, that they're false stories, that they're not what you have done, but that they're ways that the world's been interpreted apart from you. We pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us diligence to reshape our minds and to reshape our hearts more and more to your story, that we wouldn't let your words sit on our shelves uh, and collect dust, but that we would recognize that we need more and more every day to remember, to remember what you've done, to remember not just what has happened in the past, but remember what you've promised will happen, that these stories would shape our lives. We pray that you would do that, that you would allow us as a church, not just to do that as individuals, but to accomplish that for each other, that we would encourage one another, that we would speak the gospel to one another, that we would even, Lord, have the, the boldness and in humility that we would call one another out when we see our brothers and sisters following after the course of the world. We pray that we would love each other enough 
to bring us back to your word, to bring us back to what we confess to be true. We pray that we would do all these things, not just so that we would be right, but that so we would draw the world to you, that the world would look and see the fellowship that we have with one another and the fellowship that we have with you, and that they would be drawn into your story, that they would have faith in Jesus, that they would see the beauty of what you have done for us. And we pray now as Jesus, as you've taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had dinner with his disciples, this ragtag group of really messed up people. And he took bread after giving thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, drink. In this meal, Jesus reminds us that he came for sinners, not the righteous. And he also reminds us that he sustains us and feeds us and enables us to be the very people he's created and called us to be. We come to this table to remember what Jesus has done, but also to trust in what Jesus is currently doing and what he's promised to do. So if you are a believer, if you look to Christ in faith, if, if his story is your story, then I would encourage you today, come to the table and feed on him by faith. If his story is not your story, if you're just here sort of checking things out, then I would encourage you not to come to the, to the table, but instead, take some time and, and just pray, Lord, if 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 this is really true, would you begin to persuade me? And then, and then come talk to me or, or talk to Mitchell. We would love to talk to you about Jesus. I'm gonna invite the musicians forward first and we're gonna serve them. And then I'm gonna call the rest of you forward. But before we do, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for this meal. Thank you for this physical reminder of what is most true, that you have come for sinners, not for the righteous, and that you've come not simply to forgive us, but to transform us, to sustain us, to feed us, to make us more and more like you. We pray this morning as we come to this table that we would do more than just an empty ritual, but rather we would encounter you by faith, the living in the true God, the light of the world. And would your light shine in our lives and through our lives into our community? We ask 
for your grace, for your mercy, for your transforming power. In Christ's name we pray, amen.